This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It's great to be with you and thank you for joining me every week. And if you're new, hopefully you'll find a voice of reason, an American voice, a patriotic voice, one that believes in liberty, one that is ready to take on the battle within the House of Islam that needs reform. Every week I try to find issues that uh, move the football forward, if you will, in counter-radicalization, counter-ideology, and reforming the ideas that I believe feed into the narrative of political Islam, Islamism. Last week we talked about the executive order that had been freshly signed by President Trump about the refugees. We talked about what that might mean, what it doesn't mean. And sure enough, I thought I could go on to some other topics this week, but I have to, I have to touch first on just the unbelievable hyperbole that has come out. If there's one thing I think that can be summarized in what's come out of this executive order is not only what it's not, it's not about Muslims. It's not about a ban. And it's all about the left exploiting us Muslims as an identity movement. Being Muslim, like any faith, is quite diverse. It's not one identity. But unfortunately, the left, when it looks at individual identity, looks at us as skin, looks at us as skin color, as a, a immutable characteristic racially, So they're trying to racialize Islam so that they can check the box that every Muslim must be Democrat, must be a leftist in order to feel comfortable at home in America. So therefore, if you look at the pathways of radicalization in America, the first step, yes, Homeland Security gets that last step, but the first step is the ghettoization of the mindset of the psychology where Muslims feel carved out of society that that they are uh, embattled attacked in a country that they're a minority in and they're being uh, besieged by bigotry. Yes, that's what the Islamist groups do, but number one is the leftists, the majority of the population in America that are liberal mentality that use identity politics to categorize, to collectivize us Muslims into one group. Could we be diverse, conservative, liberal, orthodox, uh, progressive, whatever you want to call? They don't want to view us that way. And the, the bizarre hypocrisy of the matter is that if you look within the Islamist groups that the left is working with, be it the Council on American Islamic Relations, be it the um, Islamic Side of North America, etc., are imams like Siraj Wahaj, Yasser Qadi and others who claim to be standing arm-in-arm with the gay community, arm-in-arm with the feminist community, when in fact they've given sermons that are misogynistic, homophobic, 
anti-Semitic, from Holocaust denial to to statements about women and gays that would fit in an Iranian Supreme Council in Iran, but certainly not in America's progressive community. So the hypocrisy is just beyond the pale in the left, where they use us. I mean, the epitome this week was Nancy Pelosi at this these fabricated rallies, and one of them was a speaking rally with other members of Congress, and Congressman Andre Carson. Andre Carson was getting ready to speak, and he's one of the two Muslim members of Congress. He's from Indiana. And before he got to the mic, there was a hot mic there, and she leaned over and said, you're Muslim. Remind, remind them that you're—tell them you're Muslim. Tell them you're Muslim. Imagine if it had been an African-American telling him, tell them you're black, or a Jew. Tell them you're Jewish. Remind them that you're Jewish or you're Christian. It would have been offensive. But for Muslims, we're simply that convenient foil— to be used. And listen, it's not all the left. The right uses us as that security foil sometimes, that we are the threat, that if you can create a boogeyman, that that can happen. But again, this is not, uh, I believe the majority of the right is about, and especially conservatives, is about ideas. It's about independent thinking, rejection of collectivism and Islamism, political Islam and the Islamic states globally are collectivist thinking that run contrary to conservatism. And I believe they're in contrary to liberalism, classical liberalism of the 19th, uh, you know, of the Enlightenment, but also American liberalism or progressivism, which I have no idea how they sit at home with these progressives. So at the end of the day, the identity movement has within eight, nine, ten days of the Trump administration gone into overdrive to continue what they started with the Democratic Convention in which certain elements of our community ended up being used to try to motivate their voters from both sides, but only from the, from the left. And I think if there's one thing in this program that I'm trying to reform is that when you talk about diversity in Muslims, it's not skin color, it's not ethnic diversity, it is ideological diversity. It is the diversity of the mindset, of the consciousness, of the ideology, whether it's Salafi, whether it's Sufi, whether it's liberal, whether it's conservative, all those Muslims should be able to form different mosques, and especially political mindsets, national mindsets should not matter when you go into a mosque. But no, the imams, the pulpits are political. Islamism is that ism that is defined as a collectivization of national identity under the banner of Islam, be it the black flag of ISIS, the green flag of Saudi Arabia, the flag of Iran, the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. You may claim some of those are secular republics, but at the end of the day, the instrument of their legal system is Sharia. Their identity in their heart is the Islamic State. The only thing their militaries would die for is not only the republic that they consider Islamic, but they believe it is the dominion of God under the Islamic banner as Muslims. So therefore their presidents can only be Muslim. Their parties are only run by Sharia law. That is Islamism. And what this ban, this pause, it was not a ban, it was a pause, was to do was to begin to just reboot how we approach some of these countries. 
the seven countries chosen were simply those countries that were already on the list of Obama as being the hotspots of terror cauldrons that were chaotic, weak, almost non-existent governments in Yemen, Libya, Somalia that really had a very difficult ability to vet any of the folks coming out of there. Those are countries where the governments are anarchical. There's very little control. We can do as much vetting as, as possible. But the bottom line is, is that we still were not sure what's coming out. Even the Obama administration, as I said, called those hot spots that were very unstable and at high risk for jihadists. And what the Trump administration is doing is starting a conversation. Now, was the rollout appropriate? Not exactly. It was done hastily and it could not have been done slower because then the, the radicals, the militants would have had a head start. Now, the messaging was, I think, the worst part. And the communications to the Border Patrol, the airport people, what to do with folks with visas that are legally here, that have families, that part has made the messaging even a thousand times more difficult. Because if you get these things wrong at the outset and the messaging then tramples on you, then the intent, the writing on the paper, which will be ignored, as we saw by the left that used this to take our Muslim community into an identity politic movement, will then exploit it and call it what it's not because most people will not read the reality of what the executive order is. Most people will not, at the even the employees with Homeland Security, TSA, other countries that were letting people in stopped allowing folks with visa and told them to wait for 90 days. Created fear, mayhem, and it should have been rolled out more smoothly with better, better communications and notices to folks at the front lines of our border controls. But that's in the first week of the presidency of the Trump administration. So I think that's valid criticism that anyone can make, but that's apolitical criticism. That's simply about how to make the government run smoothly. I mean, we had the same criticism Bush administration. The messaging on the Iraq war ended up being the reason why even the majority of Americans ended up wanting to not help in foreign conflicts because the messaging was about mission accomplished. The messaging was about simply to go in and destroy an evil dictator, which was a moral thing to do, and that somehow that would liberate Iraqis when in fact liberation is going to be a generational process, which is how it should have been presented initially. And I'm still in favor of it, but I believe this is coming from a Syrian American that has seen what happens when a people actually fight against their ruthless Ba'athist regime and don't have the weapons to do so. And when God blesses Iraq with a, with a free country that comes in to do what happened in Iraq, say what you want. But at the end of the day, Iraq in the long term over generations, I think will be better for it than having had one of the most corrupt, evil dictatorships in history of man running their government. But that's a whole other issue. Bottom line is this is about messaging. And if we're going to message what we're doing abroad and domestically correct, then we can't use Muslims as an identity group. Islam is an idea. It's not an identity. We can't avoid the conversation about theopolitical threats because this first step that the Trump administration took is about beginning to vet against jihadist ideology, against theocratic ideas 
These are things we need to begin to do. I hope this is the beginning in which he'll convene a commission on radical Islam, radical Islamism, better said. And then that commission can then begin to lay out criteria that will go beyond the pause to a new policy. But because it was thrown out there without positive messaging, the negative messaging was good. Fight terrorism, keep us safe, keep us secure. The job of the president, absolutely. Positive messaging about America standing for freedom, being that beacon of liberty for all your huddled masses, be it Muslim, be it Ahmadiyya, Ismaili, different sects of Islam, Shia, Sunni, be it Christian, Yazidi, Jewish, atheists. This is what the message should have been. And unfortunately, it got lost, yes, because of the dominant liberal media, so-called mainstream media, but it also got lost because the messaging from the White House did not include an endorsement a, a positive message about protecting and siding with those allies in the Muslim world, not the kings. I don't care if the Saudi government, Qatari government, or the Gulf states get upset about this. Whatever they get upset with actually is probably a good thing from a freedom perspective. But you want the allies in the prisons and the, our allies that are, are freedom-loving reformist activists that went to the streets in Egypt and in Syria that see us as that freedom that they emulate. What's the message we sent them when it was sort of confused as a Muslim ban? And it wasn't confused. It was manipulated by the left because they want to exploit us. But also the silence on the right about working with Muslims sometimes, and especially from the administration, was a lost opportunity. This is Udi Jasser on Reform This, and we'll be right back. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Reaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It's, it's always great to be with you. Thank you for joining me in this conversation. And I hope that through our conversation, we can begin to look at the facts, shed the trivia, shed the hyperbole, shed the fiction, and begin to come to some solutions as Americans that love our country, be it left, be it right, be it liberal, conservative, as Americans that feel that together we can come to some solutions. And while candidate Trump had his uh, certain liabilities, I feel, be it uh, his inability to nuance between Muslim and Islamists and between Islam and radical Islam, the bottom line is, is that we now have our president, President Trump, and we have to focus on the message that he puts forth, the policies he puts forth, and not 
allow ourselves to be diverted into the problems with candidate Trump, the problems with the messenger, if you will. And it is only the honest thing to do to support policies that are clear and movements forward and progress that bring us to a new place different than we were eight years for the last eight years and even into the Bush administration. And when it came to this executive order, it's, it's really in reality only one small step, one small step in a long journey, which is going to go even beyond the next term. And I hope that journey is about shifting from countering violent extremism, which is just a tactic, to countering violent Islamism. And boy, hold on to your seats if there's any sign. I mean, this had this order didn't even have the word Muslim in it, and it's been called a Muslim ban. What's going to happen when we change the premise of Homeland Security from CVE to CVI, countering violent Islamism? And you know, it's fascinating. The left will say, well, we don't want to get into theology, and that's not our role. It'll demonize Muslims and make them, it'll actually fuel radical Islam. But yet the Pelosi's of the world want to put their token Muslims around them with the hijab, with their whispering into Andre Carson's ear, telling him, tell him you're Muslim, tell him you're Muslim, so that it's obvious that he's Muslim. So that the identity is made so that being Muslim is racialized rather than a diverse idea set. And, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I can hear my detractors now, but, oh, you label yourself as a Muslim in your organization as Islamic, and they, in a takfiri way, trying to apostatize me, to say, oh, you're not Muslim enough because you're working with the Islamophobes. So their profiling also doesn't fit their identity movement that is a blind Muslim without critical thinking inside the House of Islam that simply takes any form of leadership in the identity politic as a minority and accepts it rather than saying that we have a strategy, a strategy to fight jihadism globally and realize that this is a global massive movement that if we don't do something now, we'll continue to grow and we are the only ones with that solution. Forget that reality. They want to identify that Muslims that take that on are the problem because they're part of that identity movement. Because they see a threat to anyone who brings in diversity as actually pulling that yarn of that basket that is held together by the mesh of Islamism. So what is Islamism? In order to reform Islam and the interpretation, especially that Islamist interpretation, you have to understand what it is. Islamism is an identity movement, and that identity movement uses the heartstrings of belonging to the tribe in order to invoke and impose Sharia interpretations from one group of scholars, from one leadership, and especially typically a Salafi backward thinking rather than forward thinking. And no matter how forward thinking they are, when the identity of the state is about Islamic identity rather than individual identity, when it's about tribal theopolitical identity and the pulpit of the imam is the political dais of the community, then that ends up being a theocracy of some kind. It's not pure theocracy all the time like Iran. They can present themselves as secular states, 
But when the secular president like Assad or Saddam Hussein or Qaddafi puts forth Sharia laws, blasphemy laws, apostasy laws, misogynistic laws, anti-Semitic laws, anti-Christian laws, these are quasi-theocratic beliefs in which he uses the interpretations of his hired gun imam, as we saw with Sheikh Kaftaro under Bashar Assad in Damascus, as we saw with how Bashar Assad uses his client status from his benefactors in Iran to basically become a, a form of a Shia jihadist against the Sunni population, and then radicalizes the Sunnis to allow the creation of his, of his mirror image, which is Sunni jihadists and ISIS. That sectarian divide is still under one banner of political Islam. So, the left, in its collectivism, in its tribalism, loves identity politics, loves to racialize the convenient minority of the day. But when it comes to the majority, when it comes to understanding and confronting ideas in America, they love to lecture Christians about their faith and their values. I'd love to see Nancy Pelosi, rather than whisper into my ear, tell them you're a Muslim. Whisper into another Catholic's ear, tell them Catholicism is one form. There is no diverse interpretations. While they have a whole host of arguments from the abortion issue to gay rights, feminist issues, etc., that they all say is about religion and theocratization, etc., when in fact those are debates based in reason. Muslims can't seem to be. their bigotry, and at the end of the day, the left generalizes us Muslims and uses us to say they will protect us from the mean bigots in America. They are bigoted in the way they approach our community. And they feed into whatever supremacists may exist on the right. They call it the alt-right, etc. They feed one another in a mirror image of exploiting the minority for their own benefit. Neither is correct. In the center is 90% of Americans that believe in our Constitution, that defend the rights of everyone to practice their free faith, unencumbered by government, unencumbered by media or or groupthink or tribal oppression. This is the battle of today for America's values. These are the Muslims we should work with, are those Muslims that share universal human rights. I hope that the next step beyond the, the pause that will go away in a few months is that when we get to that 120 days, Syria be put on the pause list so that we then move forward in talking publicly and nationally about what the vetting criteria will be. That it's not, it should not embarrass us to defend minorities. No, it is not just pro-Christian to protect minorities abroad. We have an ambassador for religious freedom that protects all minorities. But when he does get around to protecting Christians at times, that is not favoring Christians. It is protecting them from an oppressive majority. And one of the things I constantly reminded my colleagues on the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom is that Sunnis, that are dissident voices in the majority, are also an oppressed religious minority. And many, many, many of the Sunnis that are refugees and part of the genocide from victims of the genocide from the Assad regime 
were parts of that minority within a majority. Yes, there were Sunni oppressors that were working with the regime for decades. And they all know who they are, and some of them still are doing that. But Assad did the divide and conquer method in this battle. It is not a civil war in Syria. It is a regional conflict. And the only path forward, I believe, will be, yes, the safe zones in Syria, but globally will be to declare that we are going to work against jihadism, whether it be in our allies like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, which are brewing jihadists, whether it be in Somalia, Syria, Egypt, and other countries. But global jihadism is the evil empire, the OIC be it, and those who believe in liberty, freedom, and democracy are our allies. Yes, I get it. There aren't any short-term groups that you can necessarily point to and say, these are the movements we're going to support. But did they exist in the revolutions in Europe when those started? When the first few iterations of the French Revolution happened, was it clear who were the forward thinkers? Sometimes you have to reboot and get rid of the oppression first before you can build civil society. That's not our job to do in the West. I get it. We don't have to send troops. But I do believe we have to give those who think freely some assistance through lip service, through countering their enemies ideologically, helping create Radio Free Middle East, counter the ideas of theocratic Islam with liberty and freedom. This is a very American battle. We can do this. It's not about banning Muslims. It's about working with those Muslims who share our values. I hope that's going to be the policy of the Trump administration moving forward. I hope that will be the direction of the Commission on Radical Islamism he had talked about in the campaign. And I hope the appointments he continues to make and the deputy levels on after his cabinet's confirmed are to those who share this vision of shifting from countering violent Islam extremism to countering violent Islamism. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Thank you for being with me. We'll be right back. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, I want to talk to you a little bit about the trouble that I have sometimes with my son and my daughter. They love the Internet, as I do. The Internet is an incredible resource, educational, social, recreational. It's all good, except it's not all good. Some of it is real bad, and it can show up on your kid's screen when you least expect it. So how do you as a parent handle it? I want to tell you about Hero Parental Control. It's the most comprehensive family Internet solution available, and the activity from all of your family's devices can be filtered, can be monitored, and even tracked via GPS from a dashboard on your phone or your iPad. Material that may be healthy for a teen can be harmful to a young child, and so you need to have the perfect protection level from toddler to teen to mom and dad. One of the most important steps to a safer internet in your home is recognizing this is a really big issue. Hero gives you the power to create a protected and nurturing online environment. There's nothing like it. Try Hero. Block the bad. Choose what's good for your family. Visit blazehero.com. That's blazehero.com. Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. 
This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another segment this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It's great to be with you. And, you know, in the last segment we talked about the executive order, the so-called Muslim ban. It was neither Muslim nor a ban. And uh, some of the details of that. And what I'd like to do is move to a story that was covered this week, but uh, I think we need to talk about, need to spend some time and understand that uh, we are in a state of war. And acts of war will happen not only from the source of radical Islamism, but also from fascist nationalism that occurs within our borders. And let's set aside for, for just, please, for a few minutes. Nobody's calling this moral equivalency or whatever it is, but the bottom line is, is in Quebec, faithful Canadians, Canadian Muslims were praying at their mosque and a radical terrorist came in and shot his way in. His automatic weapon stopped working and then he used a 9mm to continue the carnage. He wounded many and ended up killing six Canadians in that massacre. Suspect right now is by the name of Alexander Bissonnette. And the stories are coming out slowly about questioning how was he radicalized, what was his ideas. And it appears that, yes, he was a nationalist, and yes, he seemed to harbor some hate for Muslims. And I'll let you look at the information out there. Uh, I will tell you that uh, on my senses, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a Muslim, but this was a horrific attack on a community. And the response, by the way, has been from the from the local community there has just been exemplary. A Toronto businessman has uh, offered to pay for renovating the mosque and wiping clean any of the damage done by this barbarian. And just the interfaith community, the governmental community, the population of Canada has just moved in a way that can only be said to not only be compassionate, but remind us why it is we live in the West. It is a land that welcomes everyone, every individual. And these Muslims had names, and they were family members, husbands, fathers, sons, Khalid, Belkasimi, 60 years old, a professor of oil and engineering from Laval, arrived in Canada with his wife to escape turmoil from Algeria. Abdul Karim Hassani, 41, immigrant from Algeria. Abdul Bakr Thabti, worked in a poultry plant in Quebec City, immigrated from Tunisia five years earlier. Azadine Sofian. He owned a small grocery store. Mamadou Berry, 42, computer tech. And Ibrahima Berry, 39, a native of Guinea and a close friend of the community. And these are just 
the six that were assassinated in this act of terror, and there were others injured. I'm sure the community is in a state of shock. And again, I just felt it appropriate and very important for us to take a few seconds to remember those that lost their lives. Remember that all of the war of words and the war of, I think, that we're trying to do on this program and elsewhere is all for naught if we self-combust in the process. And again, a discussion of the root cause of this being a fact that without a doubt it appears if this is if the accused is the actual perpetrator and his hate of immigrants and, and Muslims is, is borne out to be true in initial reports, this is obviously a hate crime. This is obviously an act of a deranged terrorist. Now we can go on to talk about what I've said many, many times on this program and nationally that the underbelly of this type of hate crime might be greater supremacist movements in the West, but it doesn't include a global pre-modern ideology that has taken over governments across the planet. So there is some difference there. But at the end of the day, the families that lost their fathers, brothers, and sons, the families that sat in that mosque to pray and ended up having to pick up bodies after the carnage. It's no different than the families in Israel that suffer acts of terror from Hamas. No different from Christian families that suffer acts of terror in Egypt from the Muslim Brotherhood and their sympathizers or in Syria from ISIS. At the battlefront, the battle lines, the victims of those attacks feel exactly the same. The magnitude, the root cause is very different. And that's what we're trying to address here. And I make no apologetics that the two can be compared in the threat to humanity and the peace of mankind that yes, there's the attack in Norway and then this one, but you're going to be hard-pressed to find the peace in which Muslims live in this country paralleled in any other Muslim-majority country. And in fact, be it Istanbul and elsewhere, Muslims are often the primary target, especially moderate reformist Muslims are the primary target of radical Islamists. But that's another conversation. I want to end here with a, a moment of silence for these that were these victims of this hate crime what appears to be a horrific hate crime in Quebec thank you you know it's interesting the other day i was on a program and had a local conversation here one of the local media spots programs about whether america should vet ideologies and those ideologies it was amazing to me about the response the response was that no america should vet background checks should vet terror group affiliation and they compared terror group affiliation to affiliation 
with the Nazi party in World War II, etc. Well, the comparison's there, but the underbelly of terror groups is Islamist supremacism, is theocracy. And I'm starting to realize that, you know, this, before we get to bans and countries that are threats, etc., I think our country needs to have a conversation about who we should allow into the United States of America. And I get that we are a country based on free speech, based on freedom of religion, our first freedom. But that's for citizens that are here. The most important identity that the Founding Fathers had in creating this country and its rule of law and its founding principles was that the people of this country shared an ideology of equality under God and unalienable rights to every individual with no religious test. That's for citizens here. But for citizens coming from a, for, for citizens of other countries or refugees coming here, to say that we do not have a right as a nation to protect ourselves from fratricide and welcoming in under the blindness of compassion, of humanitarian acts, which is just an unbelievable American trait that, yes, my family benefited from. But we welcomed, my parents welcomed vetting for whether they believed in the American culture, whether they believed in the American social contract about the equality of all under the law. So does a country have a right to vet those coming into our society? I can't even believe we're asking this question. But I'm starting to realize, talking on national media, talking to people all over the country, that there is a large population that believes it is un-American to even ask the questions about ideology. And they feel that people could lie. Seriously, you think they're all going to study up on what it means to be an American and, and figure out how to answer to um, break the code of American freedom and liberty? I don't think so. I think it'll be obvious to those who question how to do those interrogations and vet against those who do not share our values. So be they Russian fascist, Chinese fascist, whatever it may be, they should not be welcomed into this country. Those who believe in freedom and liberty, we should welcome them. And to say there should be no ideological test is just absurd beyond comprehension. When we come back, I want to continue talking about this because I, I cannot tell you enough how I, I'm just shocked that not 99% of Americans believe that it is very American to have ideological tests on coming into this country. This is Zudi Jasser, and we'll be right back with our last segment of Reform This this week. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. 
Perform This with Dr. Sudi Jesser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to the last segment this week of Reform This. Thank you for sticking with me, and if you're new, thank you for listening. I hope you find some information here, some conversation that you don't get anywhere else. And I think this question is the most important question of the day that seems to be lost in all the cacophony of fabricated issues, uh, uh, attacks on our order, our peace in America, and... The most important issue is, what does vetting mean? The last eight years and even before has been vetting somehow that, oh, they don't belong to terror groups. They don't have a membership card with Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda of the Arabian Peninsula or Hamas. Well, that worked sort of. But now with mass exodus of refugees into Europe and elsewhere, Some say, well, we don't have a humanitarian need to bring these people in. I I believe we do. I believe that it is in our interests to, as we did in every global conflict from World War I, II, and the Cold War, we did bring in refugees, not only because of a humanitarian need, but in the end, in a utilitarian way, America standing for that liberty, that bring us your tired, your poor, that that idea, which is distinctly American, spreads with viral mechanisms the ideas of freedom around the world. And that comes back to grow free markets and I think to benefit us in a, in a utilitarian way, let alone the compassionate human, humanitarian benefit we provide from giving back because of the blessings that this country has as the most... I believe, blessed country in the planet. But having said that, we need to do it smartly. It should not be a national fratricide where whoever comes on in boats and airplanes, whichever mechanism they use to come into the United States, that we just welcome them in because they look needy or because they have a good story. I have a lot of family that have a good story. My parents had a great story when they came in 1967 to the United States. I was born a few months after that, and they waited months after months until they finally got approval to stay. And five years later, they were naturalized citizens. But they never felt it was a demand that they had a right to be here, but they prayed and they wanted that privilege, that gift to be here. It is not a right, but it is a privilege, and we should welcome those who we have a capacity to and who will not harm us. So how do we figure out whether they can harm us or not? Uh, talk to your friends. Check it out. See if I'm if I'm lost in space here. But I'm talking to a lot of people who tell me that It is not America's role to vet ideas. When people come in, as long as they're not criminals, they don't have a crime record, etc., they don't belong to terror groups, quote-unquote, that then they must be our friends. Hold the presses. So set aside the Islamist issue, the jihadist issue. If somebody belongs to the ruling Russian party and thinks Putin is the best thing since sliced bread... That's somebody I wanted the United States? 
while Russian government is using cyber attacks upon newspapers and is uh, holding up people like Snowden, who are traitors and should be executed because of treason? Seriously, these are people that we should not vet? And you think there's no way to ask in an hour or two-hour interview or more questions about the way they view liberalism, democracy, free markets? Oh, and they, you know, oh, that's not the role of government. Well, you know, listen, yes, the role of government is to stay out of the way for, from its citizens that as long as they're not preaching violence and imminent acts of violent destruction of property and harming others, the latitude for citizens to speak in our borders is very broad, which I thank God for those principles of our Bill of Rights especially that First Amendment and the Supreme Court's interpretation of that. But people coming into this country, we have a moral obligation to our other citizens to make sure we're not having a conduit of organized operatives of the Chinese Communist Party or the Russian Federation's um, ideological party. And when it comes to the Islamic majority countries that are Islamists, Salafi jihadis, movements that are from Pakistan to Egypt and Saudi Arabia and, and the Khomeinist uh, jihadists that created Hezbollah. Yes, Hezbollah obviously is on the terror list, but Khomeinists who are nonviolent, I don't want them in the United States, do you? And you don't think we can do an interview in a way that and again, you'd have to engage Muslims to help you with that. I could easily figure out if a Khomeinist or a, a Sunni Salafi jihadist had ideas that believed in celebrating free speech, uh, apostasy rights. Uh, do they look at Muslim countries as necessary to form a caliphate? Do they divide the world into the land of Islamic rule and the land of non-Islamic rule? These are ideological issues that, you know, listen, it's not like there aren't hundreds of thousands of necessary of folks looking for refuge. They can go elsewhere if they don't share our values. And it's not like if we only took those who believe in our, our system of freedom that we would run out of people to help. So it's very American to have a litmus test in, in, in giving people that privilege to come. No, it should not be based on one entire religion. No, it should not be based on one entire obvious uh, race, which would be bigoted. But the ideas that we share as Americans should be part of that vetting. And the contrary discussion to this is who do we help abroad? One of the criticisms of the president in his signature to the order was that he mentioned helping minorities. And then they pull quotes from here or there saying that he had mentioned Christians and somehow that becomes an example that Christians will be favored. It is ent entirely absurd to say that the simple mention 
of the protection of minorities, which is part of the criteria of those who seek asylum, which is they seek asylum in America and we protect because of persecution for their views, be they political, religious, or otherwise. So if we identify some of them as minorities and we have an ambassador for religious freedom that one of the things he or she does abroad is to stand up for the rights of minorities from the oppressive majorities and stand with the Coptic Christians of Egypt that might be oppressed, to stand with the Yazidis of Iraq and Syria that were genocidally attacked, to stand with the Sunni reformers who are in the majority Sunni but yet are minority dissidents. This is not a litmus test for one religion, but rather for persecuted minorities, which is what our documents, our principles are all about. It is absurd to all of a sudden hear the mention of Christian or Jewish or Yazidi and say that we are favoring a religion by simply having a president that signs an edict. And you know, listen, the, the, the narrative from the left of exploiting the identity politic that we talked about in the first segment was certainly fed by the sloppy, unnuanced messaging, especially during the Republican primary and campaign in which candidate Trump couldn't nuance between Islam and Islamists. He said on CNN a couple times, Islam hates us. He he did talk about a Muslim ban and I, I said multiple times nationally he should have said Islamist. But everybody's in an educational curve right now, and we're getting whiplash, obviously, because the last eight years the the media was under general anesthesia, and as the president allowed genocide to happen in Syria and, and so many things to happen while he gulfed hundreds of rounds, um, the reality is, is we're finally waking up and we're getting a fast-forward course in identifying our enemy and the enemy ideas. But it's not about an identity politic and stop allowing the left or whoever to make this into being about identity politics. Islam is an ideology. Within it, it has strains that threaten our sovereignty and within it are strains that belong here, not only belong here at home, but need to be our greatest assets as faithful Muslims that will help us fight the jihadists globally. And I believe ultimately that's a majority of Muslims. They certainly aren't in control in most of these countries that are cauldrons of terrorism and radical Islamism, but their theocratic mentality that they fight against is the key to the problem. So ask your friends at the water cooler or wherever, can America vet against ideologies? And if they tell you that's not our role, Grab your composure and have a conversation because the United States needs to begin to get its big boy pants on or whatever you want to call it and start to have adult conversations about who we let in and who we don't, how we do security clearances and how we don't. Our Muslim Reform Movement Declaration, a two-page, I think, can be used for that, uh, a set of principles of what we're for in addition to what we're against. And that should be part of the vetting. Interviews can happen with that. But first, we need to, as a country, say that that is rational. It is not unconstitutional. 
And now you have all these lawsuits flying around against the president for so-called banning Muslims. And then there's even this tidbit quote from Mayor Giuliani about, well, he came to him about a Muslim ban, so how do you do it? And, you know, listen, please. Now, obviously, he's probably smart. Giuliani was not, did not pass the muster for the uh, Trump administration. It was probably related to other things, but the sloppy messaging is going to take away from the necessary changes in policy that we're having. And it'll take away not only the effectiveness, but be used against the strategic ends that it seeks. And the Iraq war was a great example. President Bush, I believe, was wise and moral in the conflict that we fought there. That truly, there would have been no other way to make sure there were no weapons of mass destruction in a, in a dictator that refused to allow us to inspect and who was just as bad as Assad. And we liberated their people. Now, the messaging, the implementation, the follow-through now with the withdrawal by Obama has been horrible. And it has made a vacuum in which now we have a president that proudly says he wouldn't have gone in and proudly says he would have allowed Saddam stay in. I think a lot of that loss was related to messaging. I don't believe it's related to to having done the wrong thing or policy, but messaging of mission accomplished and then what we did afterwards. So success in policies is not only related to what you say, what you write, and what you sign, but it's related to implementation and articulating what your intent short-term and long-term is. Here on Reform This, I will walk with you week to week to figure out what the policies are smart, what part of the policies are not, and how do we implement them and articulate them to the masses in a way that makes sense as American and we can stand proud with. This is Zudi Jasser. Thank you for joining me week to week on Reform This, and we'll be back next week. God bless. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network.